Amen? Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. It's uh, good to see you uh, here today. Um, clearly the crowd um, of the day, this is the fullest service, um, a full, almost a full service because um, you don't like to get up early and come to the 8.30 service, correct? And um, you don't want it to bleed over into the afternoon, correct? You want to get it done so that we can have the afternoon, correct? I got you guys pegged. I know, I know, I know the 10 o'clock people. I know you guys. Well, it's good to be with you at any time, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, good to remember to celebrate Thanksgiving uh, pursuant to provincial regula- regulations, so only be as happy as the Premier says you can be happy today. Um, <laughs> happy Thanksgiving uh, to all of you, and um, despite, I think it's just important for us to say, despite restrictions and the weirdness that 2020 has been, we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? So much to be thankful for, and I'm grateful for that. So, all right, ready to get into uh, Romans chapter 1? You think you are. It's a tough message and a tough passage, and we want to start with a question. Uh, Three words. What is truth? What is truth? And that's that's a really important question that's actually being asked a lot on university campuses and in articles that are being written and, and books that are, have been written, discussions and debates that are happening. What is truth all over the Western world, really, for several decades, um, as if it is a new and innovative philosophy, that it, that it is the very example of progressive thinking and, and contemporary thinking. And in reality, the question was asked by the head of government of the Roman province of Judea in the first century. His name was Pontius Pilate, and he asked the question to Jesus during his trial, and you can read about it in John 18, verse 32. Yes, uh, Pilate asked the question 2,000 years ago. Many others have been asking the very same question, even before Pilate, and certainly after him for all these hundreds and thousands of years. It's very, very vogue. It's very in style to ask the question in our day. And I want to say this, it's a really great question. I mean, we should really affirm this question that people are pressing in to ask the deeper questions of life and to ask exactly what is true and what is not true. Well, the Word of God lets us know that this is, in fact, the root issue in the conflict that exists between humanity and God. It is this matter of truth. And in fact, it is the suppression of truth that's gotten us where we are. If you go back to the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, the serpent twisted the truth in that encounter with Eve. And having twisted the truth, Eve received that, and she then suppressed the truth that she knew and had received from God Himself. And as a result of that, sin entered the perfect world, and as a result of that, death and the condemnation that God brought upon the earth as a result. The consequence is, and this is an important phrase in the text this week and next week, but the consequence was that we fell under the wrath of God. The divine retribution that flows from His holiness, from righteousness. Now, our only way out of this eternal dilemma that we find ourselves in is to embrace the truth of the gospel. And that's what this series is about. It's the power of the gospel in our lives. 
We have to embrace the, the, the truth of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, by His death, by His life, by His death, and by His resurrection, reversed, pulled off a great reversal of the curse that was placed on, a humani- on humanity as a result of the fall. And for every human being, one person at a time, to find relationship with their Lord and with their Creator. So the question is, going into this message today, the question is, have you embraced the truth of the gospel? Have you embraced the truth of the gospel? Or will you, if you have not already, will you embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me read uh, our passage for today, Romans 1, 18, through to the end of the chapter, verse 32. I'll read this, and then we're going to go after uh, this question. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right. Deep breath. Heavy passage, right? Very heavy passage. Well, let's look at this because it it comes at us. It's hard. It's negative. It's the bad news part of this. Uh, But we need to hear this, and and I've turned it now in the outline so that we're not seeing it from the perspective of those who suppress the truth, but we're seeing it from the perspective of those who embrace the truth. So when I embrace, you can see this in your notes, when I embrace the truth of the gospel first, great news, I avoid God's wrath. That seems like a really good thing, right? To avoid the wrath of God. And so, like, Paul concluded the last, last section that we looked at in the first message with uh, the line, verse 17, you can see it there, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he talked all about the righteous, and he moves to a discussion now of the unrighteous, 
And this is the necessary counterpoint in this first chapter, the necessary counterpoint talking about the unrighteous to the, to, to the very positive tonality, the very optimistic tone of that first part of Romans 1. And because the letter is about the gospel, the entirety of the gospel, the power of the gospel, we have to hear the bad news before we can fully appreciate the good news that Jesus Christ is offering to us. The bad news section is going to take us now, not just today in this latter part of chapter 1, but through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, it's going to be this message and next week's message and the message after that. And don't be tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to skip all the bad news. I'm going to come back four weeks from now and start on the good news. We need to hear this. So how many people are committed to being here the next three weeks? Hear all the bad news too. I can wait till you all commit to this. Everybody, everybody at home, everybody at home, raise your hands, okay? And we're going to commit to hearing the whole counsel of God on this right straight through to chapter 3, verse 20. And then we're going to get to the awesome news of what God has done uh, for us and offers to us. And in order to grasp the benefits of the gospel, though, we have to understand something of the wrath of God. We're going to touch on it this week, and then through chapter 2 and a bit of chapter 3, we're going to look more deeply into the wrath of God Uh, in the next message. And this is what makes, the wrath of God is what makes the gospel necessary for us. And so he says, look at the text, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, now highlight this next phrase, we're going to hear it over and over again, they suppress the truth. And it's not a surprise, it should not be a surprise to us that this actually is the battleground for Christianity in the contemporary world. It's truth. And I, some of my favorite authors and people to listen to are Timothy Keller and uh, John Lennox and Rebecca McLaughlin, who are, uh, they're on the front lines of this battle of truth. They're writing some really great things and saying some really great things uh, to, to bring this up in the world and to help us process what's happening in the world, what others are saying about all of these things. We understand that Satan is engaging in this world, and as we see it in this passage, that Satan's engaging in what many politicians and many professors and even some preachers are engaging in. It's the twisting of truth to suit personal ends and and to suit the moment, really, to speak into the contemporary culture. And it has the effect of drawing people away from God, which have been established at the creation. And so it's this twisting of truth. The essence of the battle is the suppression of truth. And we are inclined, when we start to think about our natural inclination, our natural inclination is to suppress the truth. That's our default setting, and every one of us understands the concepts that if that's true, if we suppress the truth with every decision I make, there are consequences that come with those decisions. Everybody in this room had, has had parents or parent influences in our lives, and many of us in this room are or have been parents, so we understand the concept of choice and consequence, correct? 
choice and consequence. And so as children, you cannot lie to your parents. You cannot cheat on a test. You cannot steal from a store. You cannot break a neighbor's window and not face some consequence for those choices that, uh, that you made. And, and so we understand the concept, choice, consequence. And when we go back to now the idea of humanity and how that plays out for the whole human race, because we've suppressed the truth, we now face the consequence, which is the wrath of God. Divine, as I defined it in the, in the introduction, divine retribution that flows from His righteousness. And every human being is under this same condemnation because everyone is a natural suppressor of the truth. God's wrath means that I'm separated from Him by my sin and I face the consequences in my body. In other words, sin exacts a cost on me. And at the end of the day, Paul will say this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is, it's death. The wages of sin is death. Now, he's not just talking about physical death, which in the garden when the condemnation came down and Adam and Eve were cast out, death came upon the world, and, and, and that was physical death, and we all have a timeline that we're on, and we have an expiry date, and we're all going to die. We understand that from a physical standpoint, but then beyond that, in Romans 6.23, Paul's also talking double entendre here, not just about physical death, which comes upon all of humanity, but the potential then, the condemnation we're all under, which is what John says in the book of Revelation, is second death. Paul himself, in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he calls this eternal destruction. It's eternal suffering from God, a horror that is unimaginable. We're under the combination of both of those deaths without Christ. That's the wrath of God. God's holiness being satisfied by a, by a punishment, a payment being made for our suppression of truth. But if I embrace the truth of the gospel... I can avoid the wrath of God. Further, when I embrace the truth of the gospel, notice this secondly, I acknowledge God's creation. Now look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Speaking of humanity and these suppressors of the truth, the things that God has made are so plain and so obviously made by the Creator because God, it says here, verse 19 finishes, because God has shown it to them. Verse 24, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, Paul writes, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, the creation is all the evidence a person needs to know that there is a God. You start to think about that, but the the vastness, think about the creation and the thing, think about the vastness of the universe. It's mind-boggling. 
Think about the planetary orbits and the precision nature of all of that and the predictability of what things are going to happen when in the universe. Think about the mountains and the rivers and the oceans. Think about the tides and the way they work. Think about the biodiversity in plants and animals in, in both of those kingdoms. Think about the beauty of the sunset. Think about the things that you can't see unless assisted by microscopes. Think about the intricacy and the beauty of the atom or think about the strands of DNA that make up every living thing. All of it, all of it testifies to the Creator. And far from pointing away from God, science points us to Him. We should see the Creator in all of that. And that's Paul's point. In fact, Paul wasn't the only one, of course, who, who, who was thinking along these lines. You, you go back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. In Aristotle, in trying to understand all of this and looking at the natural world, Aristotle spoke about the unmoved mover. Have you heard that phrase before? The unmoved mover, because for Aristotle, he looked at the whole thing and he said, there's no possible way this just happened. And he was looking for some force outside of the natural world that actually got the ball rolling the unmoved mover. Now, Thomas Aquinas, the theologian, he read Aristotle, and he read about the unmoved mover, and Thomas Aquinas said, I know who the unmoved mover is. Aristotle may not have known, but I know. And Thomas Aquinas identified this as God, the Creator. In contemporary terms, in the evolution creation discussions that we hear today, we speak of intelligent design. Or the concept that design, which we see in the natural order, design demands a designer. John Lennox says this, To the majority of those who have reflected deeply and written about the origin and nature of the universe, it has seemed that it points beyond itself to a source which is non-physical and of great intelligence and power. We need to acknowledge God's creation. Acknowledge that the creation points to Him. And I appreciate all the writers and the thinkers and the philosophers and the teachers and the scholars and the researchers who are far more intelligent than I am and can engage from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, in discussion and debates about all of these things with naturalists and evolutionists who oppose them, who deny the existence of the unmoved mover, who deny the existence of a designer. I appreciate them engaging in those discussions. And it's not impossible in the midst of those discussions and debates for someone, perhaps in the audience or perhaps someone on the stage, to be convinced of these truths and to be drawn closer to God. It's not impossible. But as a rule, people have so suppressed the truth that they cannot be argued into the kingdom of God. They suppress the truth that's right in front of them, the truth that's right there in the billions of stars that fill the night sky. Robert Mounts, another commentator that I'm using through this series, wrote this, disbelief requires an act of rebellion against common sense. 
I love that line. Disbelief requires an act of rebellion against common sense. It displays humanity's fatal bias against God. That's the starting point. Today is no God, for sure no God. Now let's figure everything out. And Mounts calls that out. Although the created order cannot force a person to believe, it does leave the recipient responsible for not believing. Remember verse 20? They are without excuse. Now here's the beautiful thing. Once I embrace the truth of the gospel, I see it all. I see all the beauty. I see all the order. I see the design, and I see the designer. I meet the unmoved mover, and I know him because he's my Lord and my Savior. And I praise him for it, and I enjoy the beauty of it and worship him. And that actually leads me to the next point. I I adore the God of creation. Not only do I acknowledge God's creation, but I adore the God of creation. Verse 21, for although they knew God in the sense, okay, although they knew God in the sense that they could see him in the natural order, in the creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Now, their foolish hearts as a result were darkened. Verse 22, this is so telling. Claiming to be wise. The naturalists today claim to be much smarter than us. They claim that their intelligence is the One thing that defines everything that's true, that we've researched this, that these theories are being proven. We're the smart ones, and they mock those of us who hold on to what they believe is mythology and superstition. They mock those who dare to believe Christ and the God of creation. They claim to be wise... They became fools, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. By worshiping what God has made rather than God himself, humanity has actually done two things. First of all, we've made religion palatable or comfortable for us. We've created a religion that we can live with. And then secondly, we've actually centered religion on ourselves. Yes, it seems the the religion is designed around worshiping the things that are in the world, but this is exactly what's happening. In essence, naturalism has become the religion, that we do worship the earth itself or the universe. We've made that the focal point of all of our attention, and we've crafted it ourselves. We've set out the terms of this new religion. And, and because we've done that, here's what we've actually done. We've actually deified ourselves. We've made ourselves God. We've made ourselves the focus of all of this 
because we've dictated the terms of what is going to be worshipped and how it's going to be worshipped. So I'm actually the God. Now, because of all of this, because we've gone as a human race down the wrong path, verse 24, God gave them up. That's a really important phrase. We're going to see that three times. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, a broad statement about immorality and all of these choices that come as a result of us suppressing the truth, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And so if you want, this is what God is saying, if you want to dictate the terms, if you want to have it your own way, then there are some outcomes, some consequences that come as a result of that. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, that is to say they suppressed the truth, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Once you decide you're not going to worship God, then what happens is all moral restraint, all moral framework then is eradicated. And the big problem that naturalists have today is they don't have an objective set of moral criteria that they can land on. And so it casts off all restraint, and in essence, in a culture that has jettisoned God, anything goes. Your truth is not necessarily my truth. Your way of living is not my way of living. You can choose that, and I'll choose something else. God gives us up to this. And so this is the, this is the desperate moment. Will we adore the God of creation, or will we reject that and fall under the wrath of God? Well, Paul lets his feelings know, and perhaps even sensing the heaviness of what he's writing here, he throws in this little worship moment right at the end of verse 25, and having mentioned the Creator, he says, who is blessed forever. Paul wants us to know where he stands on this in the midst of the bad news of Romans 1. And would we say the same? This Creator who is blessed forever, I acknowledge Him, I adore Him, because He's blessed forever. And not only must we embrace that truth, but we have to be committed to letting other know, others know that truth. We have to help people know and believe that same truth. So, when I embrace the truth of the gospel, I avoid God's wrath, I acknowledge God's creation, I adore the God of creation, and then uh, finally this, I align, I align with God's righteousness. In the first message, we saw verse 17, that the righteousness of God at salvation, when I, when I embrace the gospel… The righteousness of God is placed on me. God's very character is put inside of me. Uh, that is called justification. It is where I am declared to be righteous by God. And so we see this righteousness of God. It's put into us at salvation. And we should, therefore, be reflecting that in our lives. And for all of the believers here, there should be, over the course of our lives, the longer we walk with Him, greater and greater alignment with the righteousness of God. We should be growing more deeply in our holiness. We should be walking more closely with our Lord. We should be looking more like Him every day that we spend on earth. Greater alignment with the righteousness of God. 
But in our natural state, apart from Christ now, we do not, verse 26, we do not reflect these things. Paul says, for this reason, okay, because they suppress the truth, for this reason, God gave them up. There's the second use of that word. God handed them over. Okay, he handed them over to what they wanted. He's respecting, he created us with volition, the ability to choose. We have our own will. And so God's, re- he's, he's, he's respecting that. I made them with a will. I'm going to let them choose this. I'm not going to force them into anything. If this is what you want, I want you to have at it. And so he gave them over to two things. First of all, we see in the text that he gave them over to dishonorable passions. And he goes on to give a pretty common one uh, in terms of an example here. It's one among many potential examples he could have used. Verse 24, remember, he referred to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. And so he gives this example, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 27, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. And uh, we, we understand that uh, such sinful choices come with their own built-in consequences and receiving in themselves, he continues, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, um, Paul uses this example. I want to say, first of all, that this was, this, the whole same-sex issue is a massive issue in the Roman Empire in, in the centuries that we're looking at here in the first century and certainly the centuries around it. That same-sex, the same-sex same practice was very, very common in the culture of the day. And so in that way, the Roman culture parallels our own. And so when Paul was looking for an example, what's, what's one way that I could talk about this in terms of people suppressing the truth, humanity suppressing the truth, and then, you know, facing the consequences of that and falling into these um, dishonorable passions? Well, he grabbed that example because it was so common and so known to everyone. And so he lays this out, what is really the the clearest New Testament teaching on the same-sex question, and it lays out that such sexual activity, listen now, that such sexual activity, but not the inclination toward, that's important. Temptation is not sin. We all understand that, correct? Temptation is not sin, that I can feel an inclination towards something, but if I don't engage in the activity, I've not sinned. And we need to be careful about this because we need to say exactly what the Word of God says. We need to not say more than what the Word of God says, and we need to not say less than what the Word of God says. Amen? Not less and not more than what the Word of God says here. And so, um, so we have this teaching, sexual activity, not the inclination, is sin, and it is the result of suppressing truth. Now, this for sure is very difficult teaching to believe, it's difficult teaching to accept, but we do ourselves no good if we, in this moment, because we happen to disagree with this, because we happen to be so influenced by the culture, we do ourselves no good if, in this moment, we're suppressing the truth. We can't do that. It's an uncomfortable teaching. It's an uncomfortable teaching in our culture today. And there are Christians who are rethinking this. And going down this path to accepting what uh, very clearly is called sin. Timothy Keller, I love this little line, says, to stay away from Christianity because parts of the Bible's teaching 
is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that belief make any sense, he asks. I mean, again, to to conform what God is saying to what you believe is to suppress the truth and to fashion a God who's palatable and comfortable for you. So Paul then restates his point in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God for a third time, now he says, God gave them up. I'm going to give you over to this. And now, not just to dishonorable passions, but secondly, he says here, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he says, I've got a list for you. I've got a list of 21 sins that I want to share with you. Now, how many people here think that their sin's going to be on the list? Just go ahead and raise your hand right now if you think your sin's going to... And some of you did not raise your hand because you're so special, you think you're on a different list. But I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to find your sin on this list. These are 21 sins that characterize human beings. And it's not that every human being has all of these, okay? Uh, but, and it's, it's not even that this is a comprehensive list. It's just, you know, 21 sins that were at the top of Paul's mind when he wrote this, okay? Verse 29, they were filled with all manner. The first four are like really just everybody. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. If you ever wanted something that somebody else has, ding, caught, okay? Malice. And then he gets into like specific attitudes of the heart. Envy. He says murder. He said, well, whew. yeah, no murderers in the crowd. But do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about murder? He said, like, If you, what did he say? If you hate someone, you've murdered them in your heart. You ever hated anybody? Yeah. Strife. Ever been involved in any contention, any fight of any kind that was selfishly motivated? How about just deceit? I mean, we're more deceitful than we want to admit. We deceive ourselves about how deceitful we actually are. Oh, you don't tell outright lies, but very often, tell me if this isn't true, you withhold a portion of the truth because you don't want it to be known. Is that not deceitful? Are we not guilty of deceit when we do that? Maliciousness? Those are all mostly in the heart. And then he he identifies some that are like very directly hurting other people. Gossips. Verse 30, slanderers, just can't st- those two, just can't stop talking about other people in ways that injure and harm them. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, just proud, just so proud of who you are, and then boastful, so proud of who you are, you can't help but tell everyone. It's like the number one best reason to just like not be on social media right there. Inventors of evil, discovering and devising new ways to sin against God. Should we skip this next one? Disobedient to parents. Are not kids? Should we just skip this one overall? What do you think? I know you guys would never be disobedient to your parents, but, you know, I'm thinking about other kids and other families, right? 
Okay, with the mask, I can't really tell how you're reacting to me right now, so that's a little freaking me out. Verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, did you find your brand of sin there? I mean, I'm, I'm, Paul's now called all of us in his net. All of humanity is caught in his sin net. Back to the wrath of God, adding in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree because it's inside of them and because the very creation testifies to who he is, they are therefore without excuse. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Again, back to Romans 5.12. That's the curse that was placed on humanity at the fall to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. They not only do them, this, and this just makes it worse, this last line They not only do them, not only do human beings practice these things, but then sometimes they stand by cheering on as other people do them. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And and I I read that line, and I was like, that is so the spirit of this age, isn't it? That we cheer on other people's sin, that that we facilitate it and we support it. so-called progressives are so intent on ensuring that those who choose sin can easily practice it. Let's, let's lower the age of consent. Let's close our eyes to unfettered pornography. Let's sanction same-sex marriage. Let's allow for more than two genders. Let's make it easy for people to use drugs. Not only will we make it easy for them to use drugs, we'll actually supply the drugs. Casinos close to everyone, and let's make sure they're open during a pandemic, by the way. And if they can't get to the casino, we'll just make it available to them online. We're going to give approval to those who practice all of these sins, and then we're going to tax them as they do it. So we can make a little coin off of it, and we can let everyone know that at the very least, your government's looking out for you by raising taxes and funding all these programs we love so much. Now listen, having mentioned all of those matters where our society today, our culture, our governments are facilitating sin. This is not, it wasn't for Paul and it's not for me. This is not a call to Christian activism. This isn't like, oh, we need to take back our culture. Let's make some posters. Petition and let's lobby our government to change the culture. Our mission is not to change the country. Our, 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 our mission is not to, to create a Christian Canada. Paul's intention here is to talk about their darkened minds, their darkening minds, and to give all these examples so that when we look at it, we realize and look around our culture and go, yeah, it really is dark. And getting darker. And into the midst of that darkness, we shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the darkness, that light shines even brighter, doesn't it? This isn't a call to change a country. This is a call to mission to share the gospel with people one person at a time so that they might embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and escape the wrath of God. That's the mission 
that we're on. And as Christians, we have to align with God's righteousness ourselves because to live otherwise is to actually end up on this downward spiral away from God. And I actually want to show you this graphic that explains this a little bit better. We're just calling this the Romans 1, 18 to 32 uh, cycle. And uh, there's three elements to the cycle here. Once humanity has entered this space, it becomes this continuous cycle uh, downward it, it, of disbelief and rejection and sin. We enter at disbelief where we suppress the truth. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. And then as a result of this disbelief, this suppression of the truth, we reject God. The phrase we heard in the passage is we did not see fit to acknowledge God, which then leads to sin, the ungodliness and the unrighteousness that's so characteristic of our culture today in our own lives. And, and the sin, the thing is, the reason it's a, the deeper we get into sin, the more that causes disbelief. We're just further entrenched in our dis, disbelief and our failure to, to acknowledge to, or, or our uh, suppressing of the truth. And then we further reject God. And around and around and around it goes. And it's not just a static cycle, but it's a downward spiral all the way down into the wrath of God. It is self-replicating and self-defeating. And the cycle can only be broken by God Himself, not by us. We don't, human beings don't have it in them to break this cycle. Once we enter into disbelief, rejection and sin, and around and around we go, is all we can do. We're wholly incapable of rescuing ourselves from this peril. The only way to be rescued from it is by God. And in that moment when God was pronouncing the condemnation and the curses that came upon the earth as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, when he, when he was saying all of that, he also inserted the hope of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the gospel, that the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would have his heel bruised by the serpent in other words, the serpent is going to inflict a wound. It's going to look bad. In fact, for three days, it's going to seem super bad. It's going to seem like he won. But in the end, it was just a wound to the heel. And the promise goes on to say that that seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. In other words, a fatal blow. We await that day when Satan will be ultimately and finally defeated at the end of the age. And we'll enjoy the glory of the Lord forever and all the benefits of the gospel. Only God can break the cycle through His Son, Jesus Christ. Only God can bruise the serpent's head. And the reality is, if you've not yet become a Christian, and in this moment, if you've not embraced the truth of the gospel, and in this moment you feel in any way the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and you say, I don't, I don't know what the prompting of the Holy Spirit is. If in this moment you're saying, I think this might be true. I'm really thinking about this for the first time. That's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And do not resist that in this moment, but embrace the truth of the gospel. Receive the benefits that He offers to break you out of this cycle. And instead of God, that phrase we saw over and over again, instead of God giving you over to these things, let God get you out of it. 
and turn your life over to Him. That's the hope. Paul, who wrote this letter, preached a message in, in Athens to the great thinkers of that city in that day. The sermon is recorded to, uh, for us in Acts chapter 17. And this is, this is what Paul said to those great thinkers in Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord, and, Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He's not actually far from each one of us. He's not that far from each one of us. Don't suppress the truth, but embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Him, He's not far from you. Receive Him and call out to Him in faith. Paul says later on in this letter in chapter 10, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can be saved from the wrath of God right in this very moment, if you'll only call out to Him. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we are once again so very grateful for Your goodness toward us and for the plan that You've brought about in this world to break us out of that cycle, to free us from Your righteous wrath. God, to give us the opportunity to live in the newness of life, Jesus Christ. So God, bless us as believers as we embark on the mission to live this out in a way that would be attractive to the world around us, to, to love with each other so completely that people would be struck by that and attracted to it. But Father, also the very direct mission that we have to tell people about Jesus. And to facilitate that in, in whatever way we possibly can. And so, God, I pray for us as believers that we would live that out. But, Father, also I pray for those who might be watching on the live stream or here in the room, God, that if they have not yet turned their life over to Jesus Christ, that today your Holy Spirit would be uh, drawing them. That there would be no resisting the work of the Holy Spirit right now, but only surrender to the Savior, Jesus Christ. In this moment, that there would be people in this service who would be freed from the wrath of God. Father, thank you for hearing this prayer, for your kindness and your goodness toward us. We pray in Jesus' name.